Do you guys have any hobbies? Who has a very unique hobby? Shout it out if you're brave enough. Stained glass. glass. You like to go to cemeteries. So do I, actually. Yeah. It's very sobering. Right? You usually find your own age on a grave. That's what always sobers me. Oh, he's 46. Oh, my goodness. Right? So you probably saw this, but I was reading, maybe it was a week or two ago, a guy who has a hobby, it's called Starbucking. Did you read about him? Raphael, he goes by Winter. And his goal in life is to go to all, whatever, it's like 28,000 different Starbucks in the world. He's made it to 14,400. It's taken him 21 years and $150,000. Is that crazy or what? It's a crazy hobby. I thought someone could just tone it down one level and be like, I'm gonna go to every Dutch bros in Grants Pass. (laughs) Might be a little bit easier to get to, attainable. Or I thought this would be great, go to every bathroom in Walmart and take a picture. I mean, why not? Someone would pick that up and be like, wow, okay, we're gonna follow you. Start a blog, we'll pay you. (laughs) Hobbies are things that we do because we want to, right? So for some reason, this guy has in his mind that his life goal is to go to every, and they're opening up new ones all the time, so he's always like getting further behind. It's like, that's, that's, it's what he wants to do. And you get to do hobbies when you want to do hobbies, right? No one's like, ah, oh, bummer, I gotta do my hobby. Oh, this is such a drag. Well, you would just quit it. I think for some people, and it's sad, Christianity is a hobby. And it's, well, I'll do it when I want to, or I feel like it, or I'm in the mood, or when it's comfortable. We're studying a man, his name is Paul. Christianity was not a hobby to him. And the way that you know that is, he goes, I'm willing to die for this. You don't die for your hobbies. You gotta die for something greater and bigger. He gives his life for it. And here's how I personally know, because I'm probably not gonna be faced with like believe or you know, deny Jesus or die. I'm probably not gonna face with that. But here's how I personally know when belief is not a hobby for me. And it comes from a parable that Jesus gives in Luke 17. It's one I read all the time because he talks about what it means to be a servant. He says, there's a servant that goes out and he works all day long. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. would be the normal workday for a slave, a servant. He works that full day. That's a long day. That's a 12-hour day. He comes home. When he comes home, the master is in the house at the table. And Jesus says, what happens there? Does the master say to the servant, bro, you look tired, man. Sit down. Let me cook some food for you. Let me serve you. No. The servant comes home dragging himself into the house. He sees the master at the table and he goes, okay, great. Let me cook you some food, cooks him some food, prepares it, gives it to him, serves him, cleans up, and then he gets to do what he wants to do. See, here's the thing. When Christianity is a hobby, you like to serve. Because when you like to serve, it means that you're in control of it. I'll give you this much, God, and that's it. And then when it's my time, when I put in my time, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, 
right? That's, that's a hobby. When Christianity is your life, like Paul, then you become Luke 7, you become a servant. And when it's inconvenient and hard and difficult, you still say, it doesn't matter because this is my life, not a hobby. So we're following a guy who models it brilliantly. And here now, he is headed into Jerusalem against everyone's advice. Everybody is saying, don't go there. It's gonna be bad. I don't care. I don't care, I don't care. He gets to the temple, does this thing. I don't think it was the, the best decision for Paul. Goes there, six days into it, on the seventh day, he's gonna sacrifice. Mob rises up, gonna tear him to pieces. This captain named Claudius, I just call him Claude, saves him, is taking him back to the barracks when all of a sudden, Paul looks around, sees this massive crowd of Jews and he's like, this is the moment I've been waiting for for 20 years. Romans 9, I would give my own soul to see these guys saved. So he says, hey, time out, Claude. Can I say a couple words to these guys? And the guy says, okay. So that's chapter 22. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna rush through two chapters because they're really linked together. And then I'm gonna give you two things that shocked me when I studied through these chapters that maybe I hadn't noticed before. Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna move. Chapter 22, I don't think I'll actually be long though because it's narrative. So it's a story, it's just telling a story. So now Paul begins to address them. Chapter 22, verse one. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. The first thing he does is this, he gives his bio. And his bio is this, I'm just like you guys. I'm just like you guys, right? Only more, I'm even more than you guys. It reminds me of this, he's a famous comedian. And this is one of his lines, he always says this, I'm just like you guys, only with talent. <laughs> it's kind of what Paul says. I'm just like you guys. But wait a second, I studied under Gamaliel. That'd be like saying, I have a PhD from Oxford, right? Or I hung out with Billy Graham. This is as good as it gets, right? Uh, not only that, but this thing that you guys are all mad at, I was an early adopter. I was persecuting it before you guys even knew it existed. I saw it, I was there. I started noticing that it was wrong. I was an early adopter. And then verse five, I started franchising to other cities. I'm like you, but more, pretty amazing. So what Paul is saying here is I was a hater of Christianity, like you guys. It's amazing to me how many haters have become lovers. 
I was listening to the radio a couple of days ago and a guy named Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist, brilliant, brilliant man, was giving his testimony. And he was talking about how he's an atheist, he's, he's, he's Canadian, um, he's, he's written some really good books, Reasons to Believe and some other great ones. And he was talking about how in, in the education circle, you just don't believe, especially in astrophysicists, you just don't believe. And they started looking at how stars form and it perplexed him. Because right now, our current way of saying the stars that form, big bang, boom, clouds of gas go all over, expand, go fast, fast, fast. It slows down. And then they say, gravity began to act on these big, you know, there are trillions of light years across, massive clouds of gas. And that, that it began to, the gravity began to compress these massive, massive clouds of gas over tons and tons of time until boom, it squished them so hard that it lit the nuclear fusion fires of a star, right? That's current way that we say stars existed. He's like, wait a second. What happens when you compress a gas? It gets hot. What happens when gas gets hot? It expands. So just, if you just go to normal, like get out of astrophysicists and just come down to like regular old physics, that doesn't seem to work very well. And so he started to notice some, things, some anomalies. And he's like, huh. And it began to lead him on this path where then he says, I think there is a God. And then he says, I was very reluctant to commit to Christianity because of the negative press that I would get. And then finally, just Jesus compelled me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he gave his life to Jesus. And he went from agnostic atheist to now this guy that brilliantly, incredibly teaches about the facts of, hey, it's, it, there's no other way. There's a creator, right? C.S. Lewis, atheist, like he's famous for saying this. I hated God for not existing, which is bizarre, right? <laughs> How do you hate something for not existing? Like, I hate unicorns for not existing. Well, wow, why? They don't exist. What are you talking about? Right, that was, he's famous for saying that. And it says, one day he got on a motorcycle, was heading to the zoo, and when he got off, he was a believer. I know a lot of people that have got on motorcycles <laughs> and been believers when they got off. <laughs> God save me. It goes on and on. Alistair McGrath, like there's lists of people that were adamantly opposed to Jesus, haters, and they become lovers. And it flips them so hard, it's like something amazing. Like the worst sinners make the best saints. Because I think Jesus put it this way. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Oh, I know how bad I was. I was dragging people, men and women, persecuting this way to death. Oh God, you forgive me so much. I'm gonna give my life to you. So he gets his bio, number one. Number two, he gives his testimony. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, I'm franchising this persecution. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone round me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise up, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told 
all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. What a great name for Jesus. And to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness to him, to everyone for what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Number two. Bio, I'm just like you. But number two, testimony. And he just recaps, this is what happened to me, right? And he starts talking about Jesus. And what fascinates me is this, there's no riot, right? I thought the moment he would begin to speak about Jesus, they'd be like, ah, but they don't. They just listen, okay. And I think right here in verse seven, you get the key to what will be the common thread of Paul's theology. Paul gets knocked to the ground and he hears this voice. Saul, Saul, his name before being Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's theology will key off that one statement because who was Paul persecuting? Believers. And what did Jesus say? They're persecuting me, right? It's Matthew 25. In that you've done it to the least of my brethren, helpful or hurtful, you've done it unto me. Right, so from this point forward, Paul is gonna say the key, the key to this transformation life that you're supposed to live is Jesus in you. It's Colossians 1.27. That it's Christ in you. That's the hope of glory that the hope that we have for our teenagers or the hope that we have for drug addicts or the hope that we have for people addicted to alcohol or the hope that we have people addicted to porn or broken by this world, the hope is one thing, Christ in them. That's the one hope that we have. That's as we keep our eyes upon him, we are transformed into the same image by the power of God's spirit. Second Corinthians 3.18, that's it. And this is what this will drive Romans and Galatians and Colossians. It drives those books. It's Christ in you, right? It's all about that. It's like this. I've been toying with this idea of doing a series called Human 1.0. Because I think you see in the Bible, like there's, there's different humans, if you would. It's almost like a computer program. So who here remembers DOS? Yeah, baby. So as an engineer, when I first started, like there was no windows. It was DOS. It was, you know, C colon backslash DIR, whatever, just hideous, hideous. And then Windows 3.0 came out and I was like, whoa, this is so much better, right? But then everyone saw you be going along and then you hit the blue screen of death, right back to the DOS command because Windows was built on top of DOS. You know what DOS stands for? Yeah, baby. You got some engineers in here. Dirty operating system. It was just something that Bill Gates put out super quick because IBM needed something. And he just, I mean, it's pretty brilliant that what he's able to do. But it was just, it was a dirty operating system as quick as he could get it going. And they started improving it. 
So it's still, it's still on that. So when you get the blue screen of death, what that is, is it's reverted back to 1.0. You're like, ah, right? And you buy an apple and say, forget it. <laughs> Ooh. I think what you see in the Bible is there's these like, you have human 1.0, and I would say that would be Genesis 1 and 2. And when you look at human 1.0, you see these things in those two chapters that still underlie us. So I talked about one a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday. I said, for most people, the default conscience is what I call the conscience that's dictated by the covenant of works. Because Adam and Eve were told this, do this and live. Eat these fruits and don't eat these fruits and you will live. And most people's base conscience is that, that we believe if we just do some things right and do some other things not, or we do some things right and don't do some other things, then we're gonna have the great life. It's the only reason why you would ever say life is unfair. The only way you say it is if you're going back to the covenant of works and you think we still live in the garden, which we don't anymore. Life is not fair anymore because we're not in the garden anymore. I tell my kids this all the time, expecting life to be fair is like expecting the bull not to charge you because you're a vegetarian. He doesn't care. He's just mad at you, right? So that's human 1.0. And you can track back all these things, the Imago Dei in us, a desire to accomplish, a desire to take chaos and bring order to it. All that's in those chapters and it's still in us. It still underlies us, that human 1.0. But then after that, you have human 2.0, which is Genesis 3. When everything that was supposed to be a certain way inside of you gets fractured. It's why every person, I say this all the time now, we all feel homesick. I don't care how good you have life. You might have the greatest marriage in the world. Your kids might, man, only talk about Jesus, but still there'll be this thing inside of you that says, isn't there more? Because we're all homesick for Eden. Because we all know deep in our hearts, we've been exiled from the place that we actually should be existing in God's presence in paradise. And so we all feel this weight of exile, right? So that's in there because of what was broken. So then you got human 2.0, which really stretches from there all the way to the New Testament. And it's just one failure after another. That's what it is. There's some peaks in there, you know, but even the peaks have, have bad things. David's a peak, but oh my goodness, please. Abraham seems like a peak, but oh my goodness, dude, you're lying about your wife over and over. Come on, right? So there's peaks, but there's always like valleys with these men and these women because it's human 2.0 and you keep getting the blue screen of death. Like, ah, oh, come on, can't you figure it out? But then praise God, we come to the New Testament that says there's a 3.0. That 3.0 is you and me become new creations. And now we become the very temple, the Holy Spirit, that he comes and resides in us. That we don't have to go to a place called Eden to experience God. God will come into us and abide in us and slowly but surely transform us into his same image. It's brilliant, brilliant. And this will drive Paul's theology. You're not that anymore. You're now this new creation in Christ Jesus because Jesus has now made you his temple. And that comes from that right there, the very first word Jesus speaks to him, theologically rich. It's also a warning to me and all of us, be very careful when you are going to put down a believer or a church because Jesus would say, that's my bride. You can make fun of me all you want. Happens quite frequently. My kids are very good at it. But don't make fun of my wife. If you know her, you wouldn't because she's so sweet. But that'll get me hot. Much more than somebody saying something about me. I don't care, man. Okay, it's probably true, actually. Yeah. But my wife doesn't matter. 
It's the same thing. Be so careful. So Paul gets this testimony now. This is what happened to me, right? I was just like you, and then an event happened to me, and it changed me. And now he gives his current occupation. This is what I'm doing. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. His current occupation, going to the Gentiles. But before he can get there, he's got to argue with God. God, I'm your man. You're missing it here, God. Don't you know what I did? Don't you know the synagogues I went into? Don't you know the testimony they have? It's gonna be so powerful, these guys. And God just says, go. Whenever you argue with God, you're wrong. Just that simple. Paul, you're wrong. It's a waste of time. So what Paul does here is super simple. He just says, this is what I was. This is what happened to me. And this is who I am now. It's a testimony. I love hearing people's testimony. Those are the nuts and bolts of a testimony. This is what I was. This is what happened to me. And this is what I'm doing now because of what happened to me. I love them. I love talking to people that tell me, Matt, I hated church. I hated the Bible. I thought you were the worst, man. I'd come here with my wife and I'd just be like mad at you. And I just thought you were the worst. And then something clicked. And now I love church and I love the Bible. I don't think you're the worst anymore. You're okay. (laughs) It just thrills me to death. Testimonies are the coolest things in the world and no one can take them from you, nobody. And so God here says, hey, this is great in Jerusalem, but I I got something else for you to do. And Paul fights him on it. But what God is doing is I'm opening up a door that goes to 95% of the world's population. This is awesome, Paul. And yet Paul struggles with it. And he'll struggle with it all the way to right here when he goes home or tries to go back home. Sometimes I think we fight what God wants to be doing with us for the wrong reasons. Don't you know that God is able to plan bigger than you and me? Like we sometimes think, no, I've got to be able to control it all and do it. And God's like, 95% of the world's over there. Why are you fighting me on this? Because I'm perfect right here. No, you're not. Trust me. Trust me. The older I get, the more I'm learning to simply trust God. All right, God. You call us to do that? Okay. Why not? Right? When God's with you, two men will chase 10,000. That's a promise in the Old Testament. I love that one. Okay, God, let's go. I'm gonna stop fighting with you, period. Okay, so he says, Gentiles, verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, 
away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. He most likely did not understand Hebrew. It's possible Paul was talking Aramaic, which, would, which, be, which is like the, the common Hebrew. So he's like, what in the world just happened? So he may not have known. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were with him about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. A lot going on here. Paul says the word Gentiles. Gentile is anyone who was not Jewish. The moment he says that word, they erupt. Why? Because they're racists. That's why. Everyone 2000 years ago was a racist. It was as common as anything. It was the very water you swam in. It was national lines. It was us, it, that everyone was racist. It was just that simple, okay? If you don't believe me, just read Aristotle. Like Aristotle writes about the barbarians. The barbarians were everybody that was not Greek, right? So the Jews had the Gentiles, everybody that's not a Jew. The Greeks had the barbarians, everybody that was not a Greek. And Aristotle said, the barbarians, which is everybody else. He said, the barbarians are fit in body, but frail in mind. And their only use is to be a slave. Aristotle, the great philosopher, right? The enlightened one. Why? Because 2000 years ago, everybody was a racist. It was, you were for ourselves, period, right? You know where the blue bloods come from? You know that idea? It was the idea that was in Europe that nobility didn't bleed red. They bled blue. Why? Because we're better than you. That's why. It's deeply ingrained in humans to look at tribe and look at self as we're special and you're not. And so the Jews said, we're God's chosen. Everyone else is presto logs for hell. <laughs> Keep it fueled. And that was, the, that was the societal norm. Nobody, no other, no other culture to even care about that because they had the same views as well about, no, yeah, you think it's that way, but it's actually us that are the chosen one. It was so normal. And most of it comes, like when you look at the very core of racism, it comes from this thing called the scarcity complex. There's not enough for everybody. If we allow them to do that, look out, it will eat into us, our supply, Right? And scarcity complex, is, it's bigger than just that. So uh, um, people that lived through the depression and then they hit the prosperity of the 50s and 60s, most of them still live with what people call poor lives. Like they would hoard things and say, why? Because they always thought it's coming back. 
And so they live this scarcity complex life. There's, there's studies on it. It's really, they're brilliant. A lot of people when they hit their midlife crisis, you know why it is? Scarcity complex. I now have less time in front of me than I have behind me and they freak out. Oh no, scarcity complex. It's a very, very common thing. And when it gets into a national scene, it's this. We gotta protect ours and keep everybody else from our stuff. Scarcity complex drives much of racism. These guys were racist. That's what they were. Like everybody else in this time. Heaven's not big enough for everybody. They can't come, right? It's not big enough for them. We gotta keep it for ourselves. We gotta say God's chosen. God can't bless everybody. Can he? Right? That's the idea. So it, you can live life on a scarcity complex that's always gonna lead these weird things in your life. Or you can do what Philippians 4 says. It's the opposite. It's a grateful life. Where instead of looking at what you don't have and worrying about what fear you could possibly have, you wake up every morning and you say, God, thank you for my daily bread. Thank you for a roof over my head. Thank you for health. Thank you for good people that I know. Thank you for safety that I'm worried about ISIS coming through the door and capturing me. There's so much you and I can be thankful for, okay? So for 2,000 years ago, this was just, everybody did this. How'd that get changed? Why are we so adverse to it now? Yeah, Galatians 3.28. There's not Jew. There's not Gentile. There's not male. There's not female. There's not slave. There's not free. But we're all one in Christ. And Revelation 7, 9 would say, on that day when new creation comes, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity will be joined together in a giant triumphal praise of King Jesus. That's what changed it. You can read your history. That's what changed it. It was no, no. We don't derive our morals from society. Like I'm always afraid when the moral rule is society. Because guess, guess what that means? How do we then we get, our, get our morals? Is it 51%? Okay, 51% gonna vote this in. That's our morals now. Oh my goodness. That's how Nazism came in. The majority said, yeah, we're Nazis. Okay, then they became Nazis. That's very scary. You better have a higher authority that goes over that says, no, these laws are right, period. No matter where you live or when you live, they're right, period. That's the only way that's the only way structure works correctly. When you and I say, no, we're all Imago days. We're all created the image of God. And because we're created in the image of God that bestows upon every single one of us a dignity, period. Whether I agree with you or not, whether you have a different philosophy than me, whether you are an atheist or an agnostic or whatever, doesn't matter. You are still created in the image of God. And because you're an image bearer of God, I give you dignity and respect because of that. That's what makes society work right? That's, that tears down things like racism, like this right here. So here's what happens. Paul is going to be whipped and he pulls the ace out of the, out the sleeve. Oh, 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 hold on a second here. I'm a Roman citizen. Now, if you lied about being a Roman citizen, it's capital punishment. So he didn't lie about it. Now he does that because he doesn't want to be beaten. Has Paul ever been beaten by the Romans in the book of Acts before? Yeah, where? 
Acts chapter 16. The Roman guard beats him. Why doesn't Paul pull out the card then? <laughs> Hold on, Roman citizen. Why does he do it here, but not in Acts 16? Is it because he's older? And he's like, that really hurts. <laughs> the older I get, the more I hurt. Like, you know, my head hurts. My, it, like, it's easier to talk about the parts of me that don't hurt now than that do hurt. That's how I know I'm getting old. Like, I can tell you that just, my hair doesn't hurt. Everything else pretty much, yeah. Is it that? I don't think so. Paul was traveling with somebody in Acts 16, a guy by the name of Silas, who was not a Roman citizen. So Paul could have pulled out his trump card, boom, Roman citizen, and then he would have got away and Silas would have got the snot kicked out of him. So guess what Paul does? Keeping that card in there. I'm gonna be beat with my buddy. Beat in a way you and I cannot even imagine because I'm not leaving my buddy. How good is Paul? Oh my goodness. It reminds me of John McCain. You know his story? John McCain, he's an amazing war hero. So he, he goes down, you know, in his plane and, and they capture him. He goes to the Hanoi Hilton, which is not a Hilton. It was a very, very bad place. And they, they're torturing him and beating the side of him, all that kind of stuff. And then a year into it, his dad becomes the admiral of the Pacific Theater. So the Vietnamese are like, hey, we want to kind of get good with John McCain's dad. So they said, okay, we're letting you go. John McCain said, no. You'll only let me go if I bring all these POWs with me. And they said, no, we're not gonna do that. Then I'm not going. He was there another four years. And when he said that, one of his captors said, you're gonna regret this decision for the rest of your life. And they beat the snot out of him. You can tell like when he walked, his arms, they broke his like elbows back, brutal. But John McCain said, I won't leave. I won't leave there for another four years. That's a, that's a hero. That's what Paul does in Acts 16. I'll be beat with my buddy because I'm not gonna let him go to jail by himself. And this guy, the more I study the Paul, the more I love this man. Cannot wait to talk with him in eternity. So he, right here, this time, nobody else is gonna be affected. I'm pulling out my card. And there was a law, it was the Portian law that said this, you cannot imprison, bind, or put in jail a Roman citizen unless he's been found guilty. And they'd already bound him. So they're like, uh-oh, we broke one of those rules. And what could happen to the person that did that is whatever punishment they were gonna do, they get it. So brutal. So he, un he obviously is now in a different category. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet and brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before you, before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those that stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know brothers that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul's dream is right here. Okay, I know I struck out at the temple because there was that rumor about me bringing a Greek in. Okay. I know I struck out when I wanted to talk to all the Jews because I said the word Gentiles. I should have just not even said that. Here's my chance. This is my crew. 
These are the guys that I went and I got letters from. I went to college with that guy and we started under a command with him. Man, these are, this is my crew. They know me. I'm gonna be able to speak to them. I'm gonna be able to get them. Ah, oh, this is awesome. And then one word, one sentence in, what happens to him? He gets punched in the mouth. <laughs> one sentence in, smack. You ever been punched in the mouth? Yeah, it hurts. I was trying to remember back, like, when's the last time I got punched in the mouth? It was when I was a young teen, and it was because I was lipping off with my mouth. So I kind of deserved it. But it hurts, man. That hurts. How would you respond? Would it be like, turn the other cheek? Oh, hit me on the other side. Paul doesn't. He's like, rips off right there. You whitewashed tomb. Some say it could be because his eyes were bad and the guy was a little ways away and they would dress in all white. So maybe he looked like a big tomb or something. I don't know. The guy, his name is Ananias, bad dude. Robbed people, just uh, went into the temple and took stuff. Uh, he was so bad that in AD 66, there was a rebellion of the zealots. They came in and just stirred everything up and he hid in a sewer because he knew, uh oh, if someone finds me, I'm doomed. And one found him and ran him through with a sword. So he was a really, really, really bad dude. But still, Paul says, I respect that position. And Paul knows this, the moment that happens, the moment he gets popped in the mouth, he knows this. I'm like, I need a fair, fair trial here. The deck is stacked against me. So look what Paul does, it's brilliant. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, so the Sadducees were the liberals. They did not believe in much of the Bible we have. They believed in only the Torah. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in afterlife, right? They're really functioning atheists. That's what they were, right? We, we just do this because it's good. We, it's, it's good to have your kids involved, that kind of stuff. But they were not believers. The Pharisees were the fundamentalists. Like they believe in everything, right? So Paul knows that. Paul knows that. He's got these two groups. So he says this. He cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. With a great clamor there arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, commanded soldiers to go down and to take him from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. He pulls what I call a Tom Sawyer, right? Kind of looks at the situation, eyes it up, knows these two groups theologically are different, grabs a theological grenade and just pops it, throws it in the middle of him and then just stands back. And his job is done. It goes to craziness, he's pulled out, right? So verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, 
along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you're going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. 40 men who love the law, love the Torah, bind themselves with an oath to kill this guy that they disagree with. Even though the very law that they love says, thou shalt not murder. Religion will always make a fool of you because it wraps you up in these pretzels that you can't keep them. It constantly, that's what religion does to you, right? It does it to these guys right here, okay? So this nephew, somehow, he's very young because the captain takes him by the hand. Claude takes him by the hand. Now, if he's 25, he's gonna be like, dude, don't touch my hand. So he's young. Somehow he heard something. Some speculate that it's possible one of Paul's extended family was in the 40, like an honor killing. Paul, you've dishonored us. You're going down. This young man hears about it, takes the message, and Paul is now protected because God's keeping his promise, verse 11. No one's gonna kill you because I'm gonna get you to Rome. I'm getting you a one-way ticket to Rome, all expenses paid by Rome. Brilliant. Okay, so then he called, verse 23, two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, 470 people to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. True or false? The winners always write history. And designed to know the charge for it, which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council and I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive 
and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So Paul here gets to ride a horse from Jerusalem to Caesarea. That's first class accommodations. Paul normally walked everywhere. So he's like, wow. He's surrounded by 470 soldiers and I can just see them marching by the 40 guys who had take this, taken this oath to not eat or drink. They're just going, oh no, oh no, I'm thirsty. I am so thirsty, right? Paul becomes this hot potato. For the rest of the book of Acts, he is a hot potato that's being moved from Claudius Lysus, Lysias, Claude, to Felix. I call him Felix the rat because he's not a good dude. We'll talk about him. He's morally corrupt. And then goes to Festus and then Agrippa and then into a soldier. And he's just a hot potato. Like no one knows what to do with him. And at every stop, Paul knows, knows what to do. He's constantly preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. Getting a hearing with a class of people that he would have never got a hearing with. So maybe it was a mistake for Paul to go to Jerusalem. That's always debated. But I'll tell you what Jesus does with it. He takes what the enemy would wanna use for evil and he turns it for his good. And all these high ranking, very important people with all their big courts over and over hear Paul preaching the gospel. So it's a story and stories in the Bible, they're not just to inform you and me, which they are. They're written to also drive home points theologically. And so when I was thinking about this story, there were two that came up that maybe I should have noticed before, but I haven't. Number one is this. What does Paul base his whole salvation on? The Damascus Road experience. not some text in the Bible, an experience that he went through. That's surprising to me because I've come from like a, a background where it's, hey, don't trust your feelings. Don't trust experience. Just trust God's word, right? But Paul's entire story, and this is gonna be repeated over and over in the book of Acts, is always, I experienced something on the road to Damascus that changed everything. I don't think it's an either or anymore. I used to be like, don't trust your feelings, don't trust experience. And I'm like, no, those are actually really important. Really important. It's, it's not either or, it's both and, right? Some churches, it's all about experience, experience, experience. Some churches, it's all about Bible, Bible, Bible. I say right in the middle is the best. Paul says, something happened to me and it changed my life. I know this, something happened to me September 2nd, 1991, it changed my life. And when I went through really dark times in my life where I doubted everything, it was that one experience on that one day that I say, I can't explain that though. I can't explain that though. And that's what carried me through. It's his experience. Paul does not give a, a, uh, a lesson through the Torah, biblical theology to drive to Messiah. He says, an experience happened to me on the road to Damascus that I cannot explain and transform my life. Hold on to your experiences. They're huge. Number two, here's, what he says, here's really what he says to these guys. And by the way, that's why I pray for my kids. If you're a parent, I pray that my job is to stack kindling around their soul. Just God's word, God's word, all this stuff. But I want them to experience God. 
that a moment in their life comes where God's spirit comes and ignites that kindling and they're set on fire by him. I want them to experience God because that's what transforms lives. Like we can, we can, we need information, but we don't live on it. We live on the inspiration of God's spirit. I want that for my kids so bad. Experience God, right? So number two, Paul says this, when he gives his testimony, he's saying this, I'm persecuting people, I'm hurting them, I'm franchising this thing. And right in the middle of that, I get knocked to the ground and I get saved. What Paul just said was this, by that story. And they would understand this clearly. I did not get saved by doing things right. I got saved when I was doing it wrong. Like to me, when I thought about that, it transformed me. I'm like, totally. Isn't that the meaning of saved? Right? You're saved when you're doing something wrong, like breathing water. Okay, when you're breathing water, you need to be saved because you're doing something wrong. Paul says, I didn't get saved by doing things right. In fact, I was doing the opposite of what I should have been doing. And that's when I got saved. We get saved when we do things wrong. And Jesus is so good to us. The, the, the New Testament says he saves us from the past. He's saving us from the power of sin right now. And he's saving us from the present or the future of, of sin and death and all this stuff. He's constantly saving us. We're doing stuff wrong. I have this new definition for sin. Sin is doing life the wrong way. That's what sin really is. God says, don't do life that way. It's the wrong way. Do life this way. I'll save you from doing life the wrong way. I'll teach you how to do life the right way. And so we get to come to the table. And I would ask this as you grab the cup and the body. Pray, Lord, am I doing the life the wrong way right now? Is there a part of me that I need to be saved from? Because the work of Christ's salvation in us continues on. It's called sanctification. Am I doing life in some wrong way today? Because I want to eat and drink of you and learn how to do life the right way. Human 3.0, not human 2.0, human 3.0. So Jesus, this day, we see this brilliant man, loyal to his friends, dogmatically, tenaciously given to your kingdom and to your glory and to bringing you praise and sharing the gospel. And we want a little bit of Paul to rub off on us. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what we want. We want to learn from him because he was following you so brilliantly and beautifully. I pray for each of us, Lord. I pray that we would have Damascus moments in our life, unexplained encounters with the king of the universe that transform the very way that we see reality. Every one of us needs that. And then yes, rooting it in scripture, the long story of what you've been doing for thousands of years, totally. We need both. So those in here that are dry and desperate for you, would you visit us? Would you Damascus Road us? May we experience you. 
I pray that we, like Paul, would be looking for opportunities to share what you've done in our life, who we are, who we were, who we are, and what we're doing because of what you've done for us. That we'll be taking those opportunities, I pray.